Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. chapters into the book of Genesis, and we're already bumping into the bane of everyone's yearly Bible reading plan, a genealogy, a list of hard-to-pronounce names all belonging to people we've never heard of. This isn't the longest by any means, but we might still think to ourselves, what's the point? What's so important about these names that the author felt the need to include them? People have wondered the same thing throughout history. Some people counted up the generations, added up people's ages, filled in gaps with estimations, and attempted to calculate the age of the earth that way. Could that be what the names are for? Or maybe it's for thoroughness's sake. Maybe these names are here as a way of crossing the T's and dotting the I's and demonstrating that the author did his homework. Or maybe these biblical authors are like that relative we all have who spends so much time on Ancestry.com. They're just interested in family trees. And some of these things could be true, but there's a deeper magic to these beautiful, boring name lists. Biblical genealogies always make a theological point, and this one is no different. This passage is here to give us important truths about the nature of fallen humanity and the nature of God's grace. And this is how. We have two short genealogies here, and they trace two lines, two seeds These are the two seeds that were introduced in Genesis 3. When God cursed the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. He wasn't talking about hostility between the physical descendants of people and snakes. He was talking about hostility between the spiritual descendants of the the faithful and the faithless. Humanity as it calls on God's name and humanity as it abandons God's authority. And this, this is a major theme as you go through the whole Old Testament. The authors are always tracing this godly line, the seed of the woman, waiting, hoping, anticipating the serpent crusher whom God promised to Adam and Eve. So who is this first seed, the seed of the serpent? Verse 17 says that Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, some of you may be wondering, and you wouldn't be the first, where did Cain's wife come from? the only people on earth at this point are Adam, Eve, and their children, then does that mean Cain married his sister? We can't rule that out as a possibility. Interpreters throughout history have pointed out that laws against intermarriage among siblings didn't come until Moses' time, so maybe there was an early period when such marriages weren't immoral. Other interpreters think that Cain's wife is evidence that Adam and Eve weren't the only people on earth. Maybe they were the first people God created, but maybe he created others too. Perhaps Adam's role as representative of all humanity wasn't tied to his position as father of all humans. Maybe he was just chosen by God from a larger human population. We can speculate for days about where Cain's wife came from, but ultimately we have to acknowledge something fundamental about this question. The author didn't think it was important enough to give us a clear answer in the text. What mattered to the author of Genesis is that God created humanity, 
that Adam failed to be obedient to God, and that Adam's failure changed everything. That's what matters to the author of Genesis. So Cain had a son, named him Enoch. Verse 17 goes on. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. There's an indication here that Cain has his eyes on the ground level, on the the things of earth. He founds the first city. That's not at all a bad thing to do. It's probably part of what God meant for humanity to do when when he told them to fill the earth and subdue it. But to whom does Cain dedicate this city? Not to God, but to a human. It's not necessarily a bad thing to dedicate something to another human being, but it's still interesting that there's no mention at all of God here at the founding of the first civilization. No thanksgiving, no sacrifice, no benediction, no nothing. So Cain built a city, named it after his son, and then here comes the genealogy. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Matushael, and Matushael fathered Lamech. Now, there's nothing magical about any of these names, but there is still a point being made. Lamech, the last man in this line, is the seventh generation down from Adam. In the ancient world, the number seven is often associated with fullness, completeness, the maximum. God finishes his work of creation in seven days. Jacob worked seven years for Rachel. Joshua marched around Jericho seven times. Jesus addresses seven churches in Revelation. So here we have seven generations down from Adam, generations who have apparently not been worshiping the Lord. So from a literary standpoint, Lamech represents the epitome of fallen humanity. Listen to what the text says about him. And Lamech took two wives. The first thing the author wants us to know about Lamech is that he was the first polygamist. God gave Adam one wife, but Lamech took two for himself. Adam sang a song when he received Eve, and Lamech sings a song to his wives too. But his song sounds a little different. This is what he sings to his wives in verse 23. Adah and Zillah hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Adam's lyrics for Eve were about his excitement at seeing her, about her being perfect for him, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Those words were lovely, romantic, but Lamech, on the other hand, Sings about violence and revenge all out of proportion. How does Lamech respond to a wound? With an execution. And he's no respecter of persons. He'll kill anybody, even a young man. And the word there, young man, literally means a little boy. Lamech is a wrecking ball of a man who doesn't care who you are. He only cares that you're in his way. He doesn't turn the other cheek. When he's struck, he strikes back harder. If Cain gets revenge seven times over, he says, then he gets it 77 times. Remember what the number seven represented in the ancient world. Seven is completeness. It's the maximum. Cain gets total revenge, but total revenge isn't enough for Lamech. He wants 77-fold revenge. This is the exact opposite of Jesus' teaching about forgiveness. 
Jesus told Peter it's not enough to forgive your brother seven times. Instead, he calls his disciples to forgive like he does 77 times. Beyond the maximum, extreme mercy, radical forgiveness. Here's Lamech on the other end of the spectrum, the epitome of humanity without God. He is violent and vindictive and proud of it. One question that comes up here is, why would a husband want to sing a song like this to his spouse? Why do Adah and Silah need to listen to him wax poetic about his own psychopathic tendencies? He's keeping them in line. He's scaring them into submission. This is not a man who cares for his wife as he would his own body. He's, he's as firm and unforgiving toward these two women as he is to anyone else. So what does all this mean? What does it point to? Humanity without God is naturally inclined away from God's designs. Instead of love, we're naturally inclined toward hate. Instead of peace, we're naturally inclined toward all kinds of violence. Instead of patience, vengeance. Instead of kindness, self-service. Instead of self-control, greed, and lust. Lamech isn't just a historical figure. He's, He's a mirror held up to our entire species. When we look at Lamech, we are looking at what we've all become. We want so badly to think we're, we're good deep down. When we sin, we want to think we're acting out of character, but that's, that's just not true. This is our nature, inherited from Adam. We were created to be in the image of God, but now that image is faded, cracked, and broken. In all of us, not just Lamech, but, but you and me. When you fudge the numbers, when I am impatient with my children, when you take your anger out on your spouse, when I grumble and complain, we are not acting out of character. This is what we are, apart from the Holy Spirit's sanctifying grace in our lives. But that's not all we can learn from this first genealogy, because there's more names here the children of this supremely wicked archetype of humanity. Look at verse 20. Adah bore Yaval. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilah also bore Tuval Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tuval Cain was Naamah. Now, Anyone reading these words in the ancient world would find them very surprising. We might think, well, sure, somebody had to invent all that stuff. What's so strange about it being these people? What's so strange about it is just that. They're people. In the ancient world, it was always assumed that gods had invented these things. Who invented animal husbandry? Oh, that was the god Sharah. Who invented metalworking? That's Kothar Wahasis. Humans aren't clever enough to have come up with these things on their own. They had, to be, they had to be taught. But that's not the biblical picture of humanity. The image of God is, is broken, but, but you can still just make it out here. The people of earth aren't godly, but there's still something godlike about them. They're no longer good. No one is good but God. But they're still capable of amazing things, amazing things that aren't just impressive, but, but which improve and enrich everyone's lives. The domestication of animals is how we ended up with milk, cheese, eggs, meat, and so many other nutritious foods. 
Metallurgy has enabled us to make so many tools, tools that then enable us to build everything from houses to toasters. And music gives voice to everything we struggle to say with words. It, it stirs our emotions and, and binds our communities. All this is a taste of God's amazing grace. He gives out intelligence, skill, and creativity completely indiscriminately. None of us deserve our talents, and none of us deserves to benefit from the talents of others. But God makes the sun shine on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why do Lamech's children receive these good gifts? Why does Lamech get to profit from these good gifts? Because despite everything, God still loves the people he created. Every time your roof keeps you dry under the rain, every, every time you eat a delicious meal, every, every time a melody brings a smile to your face, you are, you are in that moment a new recipient of God's grace. These are all ways that God tells you that despite everything, he still loves you. Have you given thanks? Have you praised him for his goodness? And he doesn't just give these things to you to your grandmother, to your kids. Even Osama bin Laden had shelter from thunderstorms. Even Adolf Hitler enjoyed the symphony. Even Judas Iscariot was served a meal from the Lord's own hands. It's no wonder Lamech named his daughter Naamah, which means sweet or pleasant. There was still sweetness in his life. But God's grace doesn't end there. Look at verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for King killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain and his descendants went their own way, apart from the Lord who covenanted with their first parents. But there's another seed. That's what Eve recognizes in verse 25. She says, God has appointed another offspring, literally another seed. In the birth of Seth, Eve recognizes God's faithfulness to his promise of a seed that would crush the seed of the serpent. Cain had put this promise in jeopardy when he murdered Abel. But God's grace is greater than mankind's wickedness. And that's, that's a crucial point. It's God's grace at work here, not humanity's effort. The name Seth means he has appointed, as in God has appointed another seed. God wasn't flustered when Abel died. His jaw didn't drop in disbelief. He wasn't fumbling with his hands trying to sort out what to do next. He didn't need Adam and Eve's help to produce a new seed of the woman. He did it himself. And he gave this new seed to Adam and Eve as a gift, as a grace. Those of us who are parents need to hear this. More than anything else, we want to see our children walking with the Lord. If our kids are young, like mine are, we may be given toward anxiety. Am I doing what's right to make sure my son or daughter loves Jesus? And if our children are grown, especially if they've walked away from God, we may despair that we failed them. Mothers and fathers, 
we need to be reminded that we are not responsible for appointing godly seed. Only God can appoint to us godly offspring. Don't fret and don't despair because you can't do anything to make believers out of your children anyway. Cast that anxiety onto God. And this isn't just a word for parents either. For any of us who worry about sharing the good news of reconciliation in Christ with our our families, our, our friends, our neighbors across the street and around the world, we need to be reminded of this. It's God's grace that leads people to see their sin and to turn to him in repentance and humility. From start to finish, the whole thing is nothing but God's grace. Salvation is not within us, either for ourselves or for anyone else. That very point is emphasized here in verse 26. Seth had his own son and named him Enosh, which, which means weak or frail. Cain's descendants had kept their eyes on the ground level. They exerted all their efforts toward earthly affairs and developed inflated senses of their own importance and abilities. But, but this line, the Sethite line, understands that mankind is soft and fragile. This line understands that a godly seed is a gift from God, not the product of human ingenuity. So what do they do? Verse 26 tells us that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's L-O-R-D in all caps. That's, That's our English translation's way of indicating God's divine name, Yahweh. This is the name God revealed to Moses. This is the name that is specifically associated throughout the Old Testament with God's gracious covenant. Yahweh is the name of the God who makes promises. Yahweh is the name of the God who remembers those promises. Yahweh is the name of the God who swears to be present with his people at all times, in all circumstances. Yahweh is the name of the eternally gracious, eternally merciful God. So what's the difference between these two seeds? What makes this godly line, this seed of the woman, different from the ungodly line, that seed of the serpent? Are they smarter? We don't read about any inventors here. Are they stronger? We don't see any great warriors here. Are they more culturally advanced? The text doesn't tell us if they built any cities. So what's the difference? The difference is they acknowledge God's goodness and grace. The difference is they acknowledge their own weakness. The difference is they depend on Yahweh, the God who had promised to redeem them, to preserve them, to crush the serpent for them. What difference does it make? Well, if we count the generations in the ungodly line, we find that the, the seventh from Adam is the ultimate expression of that lineage. That was Lamech. And he was the epitome of humanity apart from God. But if we count the generations of this godly line, the seventh from Adam is a man named Enoch. You may remember him as the man who walked with God and was not because God took him. The epitome of humanity apart from God is arrogance, violence, and greed. The epitome of humanity independence on God is holiness. And this godly line, the the seed of the woman, is traced all through the Old Testament. It it runs from from Adam through Seth to Noah 
to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, and finally to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate human who lived in perfect faith and dependence on the Lord. And that faith and dependence led him to the cross where his body was broken, his blood shed. Whereas the image of God is distorted in us, it was clear in him. He was perfectly obedient to God's law, which none of us could keep. And he took the penalty for our failures, which which none of us could bear. He crushed the head of that ancient serpent. But the seed of the woman doesn't only run in a straight genealogical line. It's not just genetic, it's spiritual. It runs from Abraham through all of his children. And, and, and who are Abraham's children? Who are Abraham's sons? I bet your kids can tell you. This is how Paul puts it. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. If, like Seth, you look to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge your own brokenness like Enosh, if you walk humbly with him like Enoch, if you believe and depend on him like Abraham, then you are a member of this godly line, the seed of the woman. And what does our Lord, our, our glorious promise-keeping God, have in store for those who trust him? This is how Paul says it in Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet. Because you are united to Christ through faith, his victory as the snake crusher is your victory. We will be more than conquerors because he conquered. All glory, praise, and honor to the seed of the woman who appointed us to faith, who granted us dependence on him, who promises to crush Satan under our feet. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 